I know there's a lot of really progressive people who know a lot and sound really smart on their TED Talks saying that that nuclear is the future, and I think it's absurd. Like most people, I've recently watched the television show Chernobyl, so I'm really afraid of nuclear power now. It seems like everybody's really upset about how dangerous nuclear could be, and everyone thinks fossil fuels are really benign, but that's super not true. I don't know. Life, everything's got a cost to it, right? The instability in, in, in our situation right now in the next 30 years is going to be bad. We're looking at Fukushima's from one side of the world to the next. I'm not really like that educated on it, but I think that it could be like part of a solution. Is it the lesser of two evils? Hopefully we can learn from our past mistakes, and it's, a, in my opinion, a good form of clean energy. Well, has anybody interviewed the critters? Meltface Productions. This is Listening Glass. Arjuna, welcome back to my home studio. <laughs> Heck yeah, feels good to be here. It's been a bit. and We've been recording shows at a bit of a lower clip recently. Yeah, it feels good to be back in the home studio, the studio where we began this business. All right. Today we're talking about energy and specifically nuclear energy and the ways that we can produce it. And before we dive into the weeds, I want to say I'm doing and I'm approaching the show a little bit differently than usual, where I, I'm actually trying to influence public opinion more than usual. I feel like our, our usual approach to a show is we each kind of explore a topic and we ask questions about it and we discuss and we don't really try to tell people how things are. And I like that approach, generally. And with this one, I personally feel like I'm... Maybe I've come out a little bit in favor. Actually, I have come out in favor of nuclear power. And I definitely want to convince other people of that. And so I wanted to state that explicitly and just put that out as a disclaimer. And um, maybe maybe at the end of the show... Because I think you're kind of more neutral slash against... Yeah, undecided. Undecided. I'm agnostic. Okay. Yeah. And then maybe at the end of the show, I'm going to ask you if our discussion has kind of changed the way you think about it at all. Mm. Yeah, that's so. fair. So yeah, propaganda warning here. <laughs> Just get get ready. I will change all the minds. We'll at least try to we'll try to keep it to to like um, true news as much as we can, right? Yeah. Try yeah. try to at least work in facts. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, with along with that disclaimer, this is a weird show because this is we have actually done two recording sessions, which I don't think we've done ever for either of our podcast. Um, and part of the reason is I kind of wanted to get this one right, and there's a lot of facts and and information that I had to look into and then double check and fact check, and um, so that took some time. Saying that. If anyone out there wants to help us research and fact check, we could probably take on an intern. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Might have to discuss that with Arjuna. But um, seriously, if, if there's anything, uh, I know a lot of people are interested in the things that we end up researching. And so if there's any people who'd want to like research with us, it'd be super helpful. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Up. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Okay. So before we dive into nuclear specifically, I just wanted to lay the context that some fundamentals. We use a lot of power in the USA and around the world, um, and specifically in the form of electricity. And it accounts for the 
not the majority, but if you split up greenhouse gas emissions into sectors like agriculture, industry, transportation, uh, there's a couple of other small ones. Energy and, and electricity are actually the biggest uh, mm. sector. Okay, um, it's usually around tw- upwards twenty percent, like twenty eight percent or so of um, greenhouse gas emissions are. And that's from- that's pretty much all fossil fuels, right? That worldwide is, I don't know the worldwide stat, but I know for the the United States, it's like sixty to seventy percent of our emission, our energy is from fossil fuels. Yeah, uh, uh, but I was just thinking that the the greenhouse gases from energy production oh. are pretty much all from fossil fuels, yes. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Um, I mean, everything, including uh, wind and solar, don't have a zero carbon footprint because mm-hmm. there's a lot of fossil fuels burn in the manufacturing and extraction of resources to make those things happen. Yeah. Um, and nuclear is no exception of that. Nuclear is tied with wind for the lowest carbon footprint. Mm, okay. Um, solar yeah, yeah. has like four times as much carbon footprint than those two, but still way lower than any of the fossil fuels by a long shot. So, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. As we take a look at nuclear, I feel like it gets bullied, and I want to look at why. I want to figure out, is the fear in the popular imagination around nuclear well-founded or overstated? You know, I just have to throw some trivia in. So we're, let's, oh, let's yeah. give you a okay, quick question. Awesome, yeah, so, I was looking forward to this. Um, How about... On in the U.S., like what percentage of our energy do you think we produce from nuclear sources? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, let's see. Off the dome, thirty percent. That's a good guess. It, we're at twenty. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Damn, that was my initial guess. Okay. But Damn. I, I rounded off a little on. bit. Yeah. <laughs> How about worldwide? What do you think? Oh, the ratio worldwide, is? probably like. 10 percent or even less you got it 10 really? Dude. okay all right you're not natural. bad not bad you're a natural <laughs> i you know full disclosure i really did not study for this i'm not making this up i so. was wondering if you might have no yeah, yeah i'm i'm impressed with myself as we dig into nuclear i want to talk just a little bit about how it works and part of how it works in terms of how we get energy out of so-called nuclear energy is basically we're splitting atoms Maybe an even more specific way to think of it is we're splitting the nucleus of atoms, Mm. right? And so we we need this term, which is isotopes. And isotopes are just different forms of elements, different forms of an element, I should say, that have different numbers of neutrons. In this case, we're talking about uranium. And uranium always has the same number of protons. But different isotopes of uranium have different numbers of neutrons. Mm, Okay. And so... In my rudimentary memory of chemistry, basically, neutrons uh, have no charge. Right, yep. Protons have a positive charge, and electrons have a negative charge. You got charge, it. Right? Yeah. And so the neutrons... Now, this is what I'm remembering is that most atoms will have more neutrons than protons. Is that right? Or, or a roughly equivalent number mm. of them? It is roughly equivalent, but more about isotopes. There's certain isotopes that are good for a nuclear chain reaction. We call those fissile, and they're fissile because they're unstable, mm. and if you throw a neutron at them at just the right speed, that nucleus will split. 
when it's split, it releases a huge amount of energy and also breaks into two smaller elements or two elements with smaller nuclei. Okay, so if I'm if I'm understanding this right, the nucleus of each atom is a collection of neutrons and protons. Mm -hmm. And the closer to an equal number of neutrons and protons the atom has, the more likely it is to be stable. I don't know about that. I wouldn't no? say that. Okay, no. okay. Yeah. But, okay, so maybe it's more accurate to say that just when you're changing the number of of neutrons in any given atom, it increases the likelihood of it being unstable. I'll, I'll just say that each atom or element has isotopes that are either stable or unstable. And that's yeah. actually really important to nuclear energy because it's the isotopes that are on the brink of stability that we actually harness the nuclear energy from. Because when we break that nuclear bond apart, then a lot of energy is released. I see. Okay. So, uh, so we're looking for something which is like the sweet spot between stable and unstable, right? Like controllably yes. unstable? Exactly. Okay. You got it. Nice. So... Kind of like how I've been at certain points in my life. So it <laughs> describes Arjuna on the typical day, I would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bring that up in your next like personal interview. Maybe we should just talk about real quick chemical versus um, nuclear energy. So chemical mm. energy is like you eat food, you break apart chemical bonds in sugar, and when you do that, energy is released in that. Basically, you're not changing anything about the nuclei of the molecules right. there. Like you might break a sugar into smaller components. And when those chemical bonds break, then there's energy release. Same thing with a fire. If you're burning a, a hydrocarbon, like gasoline, you're breaking apart the chemical bonds yeah. within the molecule. At the beginning, you start with six carbons and three oxygens. And at the end, you end up with a, a different configuration of six carbons and three oxygens, right? Right. With nuclear energy, it's very different. You're actually splitting the nucleus and creating different elements in the process or sometimes different isotopes mm. right so so it's like atomic alchemy is what we're yeah. doing now mm -hmm. yeah very different thing how much more energy do you think comes out of a single molecule chemical reaction versus a single molecule nuclear reaction off the dome thousand percent more 35 million wow <laughs> okay <laughs> all right <laughs> That's that's an order of magnitude yeah. or two higher. So for you sure. could, you could see why people got really stoked about this yeah. when we figured this out in the forties. This is going to solve all of our problems. In ten years, we're going to be living like the Jetsons. I mean, they were stoked and terrified because the way we found out, they just heard that there were two enormous so-called atomic blast mm. above Japanese cities. Some of the terms being kicked around back in the fifties were. Basically, we'd have energy that was too cheap to meter, like we'd have free power. Hmm. And of course, it turns out on paper, nuclear is really sweet and harnessing power from it safely and dealing with waste products and, and whatnot is actually a really complicated thing to do well. Sure. Right. I'm also guessing. So tell me that 35 million, is that like a theoretical limit that we're not achieving in our average nuclear power? Like, are we... Is that what we're actually getting, or is it like... Yes, but okay. um, there, so if you compare the amount of nuclear matter that you put into a nuclear power plant versus mm. the amount of coal that you put into a coal power plant, mm. like you're literally shipping in train loads of coal all day to, to keep a coal fire or power plant going. Yeah. With nuclear power, you have these thin rods of uh, uranium alloy, mm. 
that you put in and you replace every few years, right? Hmm. Okay. Like it, they can run for quite a while before you have to replace them. Um, yeah. And we're only using, the funny thing about uranium is you use only about like 0.7% of the actual uranium-235 in it before mm. the, the rods aren't tenable. And I don't know the exact physics behind why we can only use about 0.7% of it. Got but it. it's one of the main drawbacks of, of uranium as a as a nuclear fuel. Okay. Because you end up with a lot of like radioactive unspent fuel that you would then have to deal with, which is great if you're making bombs with it. But if, <laughs> if you have enough bombs already, which we do, then, um, you know, it's not so great. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to the extent that nuclear bombs can be great, you know, <laughs> yeah. make, make nuclear bombs great again. I well, guess. I mean, it really, it was one of the main drivers for us to add it to our energy portfolio early on. Yeah. Right. A lot of our processes around nuclear, which is so high tech, are just like controlling it and making it do exactly what we want. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. But like the actual concept of nuclear power is like, a thing that has existed mm -hmm. way longer than humans have. Right? Oh yeah. Well, the sun, right? For, so, so tell us about that. Is is the sun just a sustained nuclear reaction? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yep, that's exactly what, what it is. What, like, what what are the what's the chemistry or what are the physics of the a sun? Apparently, most of the energy from the sun is from fusion, which okay. is different than what's happening with uranium. And we're going to talk about fusion later on in the show. Okay, so we'll get there. But it's kind of. It's been on the horizon for us for a long time because mm -hmm. um, it's a lot cleaner, mm -hmm. et cetera. But fission, fission and fusion are both nuclear reactions. Fusion is when nuclei fuse and form ah. a bigger nucleus. Oh, okay. Fission, which is what we do with uranium, is we split the nucleus into smaller nuclei to form smaller elements. So if if the sun were doing what it were doing but it were fission instead of fusion then would it just be a massive explosion well, okay. that would just destroy everything no i mean it is a big explosion okay. that's you know it's not destroying anything cuz it's like the sun like <laughs> cuz anything nearby has already it been destroyed it is like destruction and birth all in one <laughs> like right so what's cool about it is these nuclear reactions that are happening inside of stars like ours and yeah. in stars much bigger than ours mm. um, are the nu are the reactions that are recombining and reconfiguring, breaking apart and putting back together nuclei in such a way that give our world such a myriad of atoms and elements, right? And oh, so like all of the different stuff, which is like in these rocks floating around the sun are mm -hmm. the products of like this crazy reaction yep. that's happening in the sun. I yep. had no idea. Yep. Interesting. Yep. You ever heard the Moby song? Like we are all made of stars. Like I'm sure I've heard it. Yeah. It Maybe probably goes it. like pew Moby song. It's all dreamy and stuff. Yeah. It's um, exactly right. So, okay. That that's mind blowing. So uh, to take that back to the beginning then, like, is that just kind of like a later expression of what happened in the big bang? The time frame of the Big Bang is like nanoseconds. You know what I mean? It was like really, it's yeah. really nitty gritty stuff. Um, yeah. And it's stuff that I just haven't really like bothered then, to like study and look then, into because I'm like, okay, let's get to the part where stuff that's familiar happens. And right. Well, I was just going to say, what's the part where nanoseconds later we had straight out of Compton? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, it like probably a lot of nanoseconds to get there. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Um, so, 
basically my understanding is the big bang made elements and then like stars coalesced those elements and and into an arrangement that was very dense and hot and those dense hot arrangements in the sun those conditions smash atoms together in such a way with enough energy that the nuclei can actually contact each other mm. and fuse or fizz mm. and and fuses combine and fizzes to break them each other apart okay right um, and fizzing is actually more like you just shoot a neutron at something and at an at another nucleus and it might that'll break it apart which is how how fission works um, okay got it maybe i should cover that in a little more detail actually let's just do that now so Sweet. so you have uranium 235 it's like ready to blow up but it doesn't because you have to you have to really like coerce it like like you can't really like accidentally make a nuclear reaction as far as i understand uh, which is kind of amazing how it like took place under like in the earth's crust at some point mm, right okay so despite the fact that it's unstable it still takes a lot of work mm -hmm. to make yeah. it happen i don't actually know how how they like jumpstart a nuclear reaction in a power plant mm. but so I'm not even going to speculate, but I, I actually will speculate. I think they just like, they probably prime it with some neutrons, all right? They fired some neutrons. Some of them hit a uranium nucleus. When the uranium-235 nucleus splits and has a fission reaction, hmm. there's a couple of things that happen. It breaks down into smaller elements or the nuclei of smaller elements, krypton and barium. We don't, those, those like further degrade into stuff like pretty quickly and the other thing that happens is a huge release of energy, which is in the form of gamma radiation, hmm. Okay. which is basically a photon. It's a form of electromagnetic energy moving. It's like the highest form of electromagnetic energy on the electromagnetic spectrum. Okay. So this stuff, um, it won't, it's usually these reactions are taking place inside of like a body, like a water like a light water reactor or something like that. And that gamma radiation will be, get quickly absorbed okay. in there. But if you were like standing right next to a nuclear reaction or any other source of gamma rays, like they pretty easily just like go through the body. Mm, okay. um, Are we getting bombarded with a certain amount of them all the time? No. We aren't typically exposed to gamma rays, but we are exposed to background levels of alpha and beta radiation. If you roll the dice of that exposure just wrong... You know, like your new your DNA gets shredded in just the right way that you might develop cancer or something like that, hmm. right? And that's that's, you, that's the biggest risk with with exposure. Oh, okay, I see. So that so this radiation is like bombarding your cells. It just depends. There's a lot of different ways that DNA can get scrambled in mm -hmm. this way, and mm -hmm. some of them are more easily repaired, and some of them aren't. And if Got you have it. too many of them at the same time, um you know, you might have problems. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there's other things. Like if you get bombarded in the right way, it won't even matter if your DNA is messed up because there's just too much tissue damage, right? If you're like standing in a nuclear reactor like people did when they were first responders to Chernobyl. To Chernobyl. Yeah. That's what I was wondering about. Was that just something, I mean, what exactly? Okay, so let's say that you are standing next to, you know, like an open nuclear reaction like that. What's the actual like immediate damage that you're sustaining there? Because um, it's, it's not heat, right? 
It's so, not heat like the way it would be if you were standing right next to a coal fire. No. I mean, there it is a thermonuclear reaction, so there is a lot of heat there. Yeah. But you have to be relatively close to the reaction to suffer from the heat. The, yeah. But the gamma radiation, and, and there's, other, there's alpha and beta radiation coming off of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff is, it's just, it's like a ray like a beam shooting off in all directions. So like there was a scene in the in the miniseries Chernobyl where right. there was a helicopter flying toward the disaster early on and the scientist said, don't fly this helicopter directly above the core. Mm, and okay. the pilot had orders to do just that. Pilot said something like, I'm going to get shot if I don't follow orders. Yeah. And the scientist's like, you're going to be begging to be shot if you drive if you fly this helicopter over that core because there's basically if you fly over a directly exposed nuclear core that's in meltdown you have this uncontrolled fission reaction that that all of these uranium atoms or nuclei are just fizzing apart and releasing t- tons of gamma rays mm-hmm. in every direction mm. and so if you fly right above it and to the point where there's nothing physical between you and that Mm. then you're just going to get bombarded with it. And it, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, it could have fried their helicopter, you know? Right, like, right. Um, so, it's, so is that mostly it? Is it's just that the density of the the gamma rays and all the other rays is just so much? It's so much that it hits enough molecule nuclei in your body mm-hmm. that it basically destroys, it kills your cells. Okay. Um, I want to say that's mostly it, but it's yeah. a little bit incomplete because you might remember that there was some initial symptoms that they had of being very sick. Mm-hmm. And then there was a brief phase where they felt better. Mm-hmm. And then they basically just like fall apart. And I think that range of effects can be explained by how ionizing, ionizing radiation has this sort of chaotic effect on the body because... When when I say ionizing, it means that the radiation particles or rays are entering the body and things that weren't charged particles before are now becoming charged particles or becoming charged in a different way. And so that can cause chemicals in the cells to, when they were inert or helpful, they might become harmful and become poisonous. And it could also destroy cellular structure. And then the long-term effects, of course, Um, or longer term would be if it impacts the cell's DNA. Hmm. Okay. So the Chernobyl disaster is, you know, definitely the highest profile nuclear power plant disaster. And also in... just the worst by like all measures, like many fold over. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. totally. So and, you know, what I realized in going into this was that I didn't really understand what actually happened at Chernobyl. Mm. And so, you know, um, I wanted to just go over that briefly and break it down for our listeners. And I think one of the reasons I didn't remember it very well is that a lot of things went wrong in right. in the Chernobyl accident and that it actually took both of us, I would say, a considerable amount of homework to really get clear. Right, which... 
we could still do more homework on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. And I think sure. I think part of it is just that in order to really grok it, you need to understand a lot about nuclear power. You also need to understand a lot about the technology behind nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And you also need to understand a fair amount about um, the Soviet Union right. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's kind of... <laughs> And safety culture. And that's like a, a bold-faced word I see in a lot of reports on nuclear accidents mm-hmm. is lack of safety culture is like pretty much always cited yeah, as one of the causes. But maybe we can just run through what led up to it here. Yeah. As best, as best we can. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Okay. So, so maybe I'll kick things off. Um, basically, what, what this came down to at Chernobyl was that they were trying to figure out a contingency plan for what would happen uh, if if the power plant itself were to lose power in an emergency. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of interesting because the power plant creates energy, right? But it also takes energy to run. And Mm -hmm. especially in a nuclear power plant, you really, you have a lot of sensitive... um, instruments moving parts and Mm -hmm. stuff that all need to do that job at all times yeah and there's one really important part that needs power Mm. which is cooling Mm, yeah so and this this is a type of reactor there's like different generations of nuclear reactors and this was a generation two and generation two reactors need active um cooling which Mm. means they need active power to cool those reactors. Fukushima is also a generation two. And Mm. so if the grid goes offline, you need generators online to to run the pumps to circulate water through the core to keep the core cool enough that it doesn't melt down. Right. Yeah, totally. And I just want to mention too that generation three reactors, some of of them are deployed, um, but there's still, still many of the plants online are generation two. But the new standards are passive cooling, which means mm. basically you can lose power and it has a s- backup systems where it doesn't need any electricity to have the cooling um, cycle still be active. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's just <laughs> kind of l- learned the hard way, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so this is basically what was going on is that at this plant, they had identified that there was this time between a potential power outage going out and that backup generators coming online. Right. And this is especially because they were running these, um, I think they were diesel generators. Mm -hmm. These generators basically took up to a minute to generate the power necessary to get the plant online. And so, so so they identified that there was the power the plant could lose power if it did the existing generators would take up to a minute to fire and they decided that that was too long mm-hmm. and so what they were trying to do is they were they were basically in the chernobyl scenario they were doing a series of tests of which this was the fourth test mm-hmm. to try to come up with a solution and study mm-hmm. it can we just like step back and acknowledge the irony of the biggest nuclear accident happening during like a safety test? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 
basically there was enough safety culture for them to be like people up above maybe were like hey you guys need to do this test which mm-hmm. i think is what happened mm-hmm. they were getting a lot of pressure to get this test done totally and then the people who actually ran the test were just like just get it done you know by any means necessary and like safety's out the window for the yeah. sake of the test like it's just it, it is ironic isn't it yeah it is ironic <laughs> but, anyway they'd schedule the test mm-hmm. at the chernobyl plant and basically the way the test was going to go was that they were going to simulate and basically create a power loss mm-hmm. if i gather it correctly they were testing a system that was going to try to harness some of the existing power in the system at power down to bridge the gap Mm-hmm. There was like a, a latent energy present, I think, in the turbines. Mm-hmm. All they had to do was just capture enough power to keep the plant running in that minute between it going down and the generators kicking in. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Another thing that complicates it is that there was the group of people who were supposed to run the test weren't able to because mm-hmm. the test was delayed by 10 hours and basically the night shift ends up running it. Yeah, And so imagine showing up to work that day and someone throws you a clipboard and says, okay, we're running a test. Um, Just do what I say. And a lot of these night shift people were like the least experienced as well. They were kind of like the new, uh, like greener engineers. They were. And and the the people, there was a group of day shift people who had specifically been trained to run the test. So not only... Was it kind of a last minute thing, but there was specific training Mm -hmm. that these people didn't have. Mm -hmm. And then to compound the issue as well, um, one of the main people overseeing the test wasn't actually a local person who worked in the plant, like a a regional engineer Hmm. who outranked everyone else. Oh, no. And that engineer was basically given, you know, that engineer had a job to do, right, which was run the test. And so... um, you know, getting into uh, like a little bit deeper into the social aspect of it was that um, there was this person who had a pressure to execute something in order to do their job properly. Right. Um, who ended up being kind of in conflict with the local chain of command. And so that that was an additional layer of dysfunction on top of everything else. Right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you want more detail about the specifics of what went wrong, and why the nuclear reaction um, became uncontrolled. The little mini-series on Chernobyl uh, from this last year does a pretty good job of breaking it down in the last episode. Yeah. So So, but the broad strokes were... So this is what happened. So we have tests needed to be run, um, poorly trained staff... Lack of safety culture. Lack of safety culture. And that's that's just kind of the groundwork going into it. Yeah. Basically, okay. I think the quick play-by-play is they cut off power or simulated a power cutoff to the plant. Yeah. Tried to direct some of the energy being produced by the reactor itself into the electrical system mm-hmm. that would power the pumps or mm-hmm. into the energy system that would power the 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 cooling in some way yeah, so that they could continue to um, keep it cool while the generators got online mm-hmm. to run the pumps and other electrical systems involved. During that process, there's this juggling act of keeping the reactor strong enough to keep going, 
but not too strong that there's an, a runaway reaction and then also not too quiet that like the whole thing shuts down. Right. So the reactor started going down. They realized that it was going down a little more than they wanted it to. So they started turning it back up again. Mm-hmm. Then the reactor started heating up at an unprecedented rate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then when they went to employ a safety system to get some cooling rods going on, there was a malfunction because the cooling rods were poorly designed, basically. Right. Now, yes. as, as I, right. oh, I forgot. As right. I understand That's it, an important this, factor here. this is like a cost-cutting kind of Soviet Union era measure they'd taken, right? There you was go. That they just had crappy rods. And so I guess these rods had worked just fine up until now, but in this particular a, yeah. moment... It's a really bizarre design decision <laughs> where a control rod, the whole point of a control rod is basically you can think of it as like a brake. If you fully apply the brake or the control rod, you insert it fully into the reactor and it's going to basically be a blocker between the fuel rods and it's going to block the free neutrons that are bouncing around. And those neutrons, are they keep the chain reaction going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... If you insert them, chain reaction stops. If you have them halfway out, chain reaction is still going, but at, say, half speed. And then if you have them all the way out, it's like full bore, full reaction, you know, we're cooking. The funny thing about the control rods is it was a little bit cheaper for the tips of the control rods to be made out of graphite. The tips actually somehow speed up the reaction. There's this brief instant when you start to insert the control rods the reaction speeds up mm. until the rest of the control rod is low enough to slow it down. And I'm not sure how long that instant is, but I, I would imagine it's like maybe a couple of seconds to a few seconds, something like that. Yeah. And during that time, because they hit the scram button to shut the reaction down because they saw that it was getting out of control. And at mm. that point, it was already at the threshold. The tips of the control rods pushed it over the threshold, chain reaction, out of control to the point that there is enough heat produced that it caused an explosion and the integrity of the whole reactor was right. effed. And it basically ended up superheating the cooling water mm-hmm. that was supposed to keep the reactor at a reasonable temperature. And then, so what you ended up with is a, the chamber holding the water filled with this superheated steam created enough pressure that it actually blew the top right off the power station. Yeah. And so there was like this superheated, super irradiated cloud of steam blast through into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was like when things initially just completely went off the rails. Right. And so, so that initial explosion was bad news you know, super horrible disaster, right? But then the problem was that what you were left with was this continuing open air, superheated nuclear chain reaction that was that was kept going. Right. It continued to emit all number of forms of radiation at anyone who was near enough to suffer the consequences, which in this case, it was mostly first responders and plant workers. Yeah. 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 And those were the people who died from this mostly. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was the big cloud of debris and dust that contained a lot of radioactive elements cesium, strontium, and um, iodine. Mm, okay. Are the, the three really problematic ones that have much shorter half lives of mm-hmm. 
like days to like 30 years or so mm-hmm. um anyway that stuff was like shot all over ukraine all and, over and northern europe yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so um so then the, and yeah. let's but i just want to focus on the the remaining reaction and the fuel therein was so hot you told me this robin that it actually melted itself through the concrete flooring right. of the power plant mm-hmm. so if you just take a moment to consider how hot something would have to be to melt through you know what was probably like this massive heavy soviet era amount of concrete foundation in this factory right? yeah it's like i don't know how hot. thick but it's like meters like yeah yeah we're not talking like a six inch floor <laughs> <laughs> no so yeah. that's how hot it was yeah 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 again the show does a really good job of breaking that stuff down and apparently it could have been a lot worse because the firefighters had shot a bunch of water at it to control the fire Mm. that water all settled underground underneath the plant and so the the risk was that the meltdown would get through the floor hit the water instantly turn it to steam and create this huge another thermal explosion yeah that would spread like that the whole mess that while not being contained at all at this point would be much less contained at that point yeah Um, and just kind of scattered all over and in a much bigger way and Mm -hmm. so that, that was that like, didn't happen though. that didn't happen okay yeah yeah so that's good um you know we learned a lot <laughs> we we sure did we sure learned a lot yeah. from chernobyl mm-hmm. yeah so yeah like like we said before there's even more detail to all of this and uh you can you know just be prepared to do your homework when you look it up yeah there's, there's a lot going on yep okay so real quick i just want to talk about the cost and mm-hmm. first Let's just go into deaths. Immediately, when in the first couple of weeks, few weeks, there's like 50-some people dead, and mostly from radiation, some of them from explosions. Mm. And then the long-term death toll for this as of current estimates, and this includes everyone who's died since from cancer and things like that, mm-hmm. is anywhere from 9,000 to 16,000 people. Mm, okay. And so that was probably mostly from like the death cloud... And then the kind of the rest of the stuff that was blowing in the wind probably yep. over the next couple weeks yep. after the explosion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So that's all like cancer, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. So this stuff got into the food chain or people breathed it in. Mm-hmm. And some people at high enough exposures that it caused cancer and death mm-hmm. at some point. It's a, definitely a disaster. I just wanted to kind of put that in context of other energy sources which Mm -hmm. i feel like get get off a little bit easy because we can't think of a lot of disasters associated with say a coal plant that was like catastrophic um Mm -hmm. or on a disaster level right like there could be accidents here and there where there's an explosion and a few plant workers die but like name one right like it's just not a headline yeah and it's because it's a business, those are business as usual power sources, right? Coal and natural gas. It's crazy how many people die every year from business as usual power sources. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I wanted to dig into from air pollution alone, not even including, say, deaths of coal miners from extraction um, and other mm. like fossil fuel right, industry like related stuff, black lung and right? stuff. Yeah. Like just people in the public 
who are having adverse health effects from air pollution in the United States. Mm-hmm. That 9,000 to 16,000 people death toll was worldwide, mm-hmm. mostly in like Ukraine, Russia, and, and Northwest Europe. But mm-hmm. so actually, wait, here's a quiz question. Mm. What kills more people in the U.S. every year? Gun violence, including suicide, mm-hmm. car accidents, or air pollution? I'm just going to guess based on the context clues that it's air pollution. <laughs> but would you have? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's just in the U.S. Just right? in the U.S. And then if we think about places that are a lot more s- smoggier, like China, for example, right? Yeah. It must be just I think incredible. China's the worst in terms of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but those numbers, just to break it down, and these, by the way, are all from the same year. I just wanted to be consistent. Yeah. Um, so in 2010, cars... Car accidents caused the death of 33,000 people. Guns, 30,000. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that those Less are kind of cars. neck and neck, if you mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. And air pollution uh, ranges, the estimates range from 70,000 to 200,000 people. <laughs> and Which those are studies like, like, yeah. So, but I, I do want to clar- quantify that. Air pollution, there's a lot of sources and not just it's, electricity. I just want to kind of keep nebulous. it to yeah. electricity generation. Yeah. From electricity generation alone, it was estimated it was at about 52,000, which wow. is almost as much as cars and guns combined. Wow. Yeah. 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 And and here's the thing, right? That's not even, that's just factoring in like, um, you know, lung issues, that kind of stuff, right? It, yeah. And it, it turns out, cardiovascular health is highly affected by air pollution as well yeah okay which i didn't realize but that's not even including things like you know deaths from hurricane katrina right Mm. or some of or or some of these other environmentally uh you know or like fire like in australia right now Mm -hmm. there are these wildfires that are just raging Mm -hmm. right and they're just then they're killing and they're killing a lot more wild animals than they are people but they're also killing people Mm mm-hmm and so there are all of these it's like how do you quantify those costs as well yeah you know and so i wonder if like in this century we're gonna see more like millions or even billions of deaths yeah which you can ultimately trace back in large parts of fossil fuel power yeah. and so. it's, it's hard to quantify too because mm-hmm. we've always had natural disasters and so you know hurricane or not hurricane but tropical storm sandy Mm -hmm. um can we say that those deaths were due to climate change or do we just say oh it was just a storm and storms happen you know but like you can you can look at your baseline of of natural disasters right and then Mm -hmm. compare an increase and then Mm -hmm. hopefully you know do some math and try to figure that out but there's estimates out there that measure Basically, it's like death. This is like the most morbid statistic I've ever heard of. But it's like death per kilowatt hour of mm. different power sources. Yeah. And um, nuclear is the lowest. And then mm-hmm. like fossil fuels are up there at the highest by a long shot. And then mm-hmm. like renewables and stuff are way lower. So it's interesting to look at that. And in those, I think there's estimates for that, including climate change and estimates for that not including climate change. And mm-hmm. so you can kind of look at what the ranges are for both. Because it's mm-hmm. just it's hard to calculate it. Um, with, yeah, when you include some of those factors, I think what has really stood out to me in thinking more about this conversation is that it may, if we look back on the broad sweep of human history, definitely like say at the end of this century, yeah, 
we may actually determine that fossil fuels have been responsible for more deaths than anything else. Mm. You know? And I mean, that's like not... How, how do you prove wow. that ultimately, right? Yeah. But I just... I, it's like when I think about it, okay, you know, maybe famine has been more, right? Or maybe... I, I don't know. <laughs> but but yeah. I think I think it is anyway, it's on the short list of most damaging yep. things to our planet. Yeah. Right. Okay. And that that is why I care about this. Yeah. Like yeah. nuclear isn't just like a nerdy science project that I'm into because it's technically fun. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I'm into it because it w- I really do believe it will save lives. Yeah. And I think it could save millions, if not billions, of lives. And that transitioning to nuclear now and scaling it back later as renewables take its place is mm-hmm. is the plan mm-hmm. right it's my it's it's the That's, plan that okay. that kind of people who have opened their minds up and 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 kind of looked at this in an in an open-eyed way of like okay but like we need to make changes now and we need to make big changes fast like mm-hmm. how do we do this and and transition to a better energy economy scaling up nuclear now until we get renewables to replace some of it and probably keeping some of it online long term is kind mm-hmm. of the plan. I think people's cultural identities tie into their opinions of nuclear more than say like any any homework or anything that they've done on it. What groups people see themselves as being a part of probably influences whether or not they're going to be initially for or against it. Mm, okay. There's two main groups of people who I associate as anti-nuclear. The first one is just anyone who's in the fossil fuel industry because it's one of Mm. the main competitors. Yeah. The second group is environmentalist. Hmm. And I get it. I have been that type of environmentalist where Mm -hmm. nuclear seemed, you know, dangerous, dirty, risky. Isn't that interesting, though? Because one of the purported benefits of nuclear is that it reduces the impact of power production on the environment, right? I mean, if we if we talk about global warming and greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that, nuclear is actually very attractive in the face of all that because it is so efficient at producing a large amount of energy without throwing pollutants out into the environment. Yeah, exactly. Right? With the caveat, if things don't go wrong. <laughs> that's that's true. And of course, provided that the waste that it does create is dealt with effectively. Right. And so that and that kind of I think that's why it's been so important to me to quantify, okay, when things do go wrong, what mm. is the impact? And mm-hmm. how does that compare to the impact of business as usual power production, which is mainly fossil fuels? Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly toward renewables. Awesome. Like, let's do it. Bill Gates has invested tons of money into nuclear because best case scenario, we can do 80% of energy production worldwide from renewable energy sources. That other 20% has to be some kind of like constantly online fuel system like coal or natural gas or nuclear. Mm. I see to to fill in the gaps yep. because all the renewable resources uh, not necessarily happening all the time. Exactly. Yeah. And like battery technologies we've talked about could help with that problem, but it doesn't appear even in our best case scenarios that we can't do like 100% renewables in that way. Yeah. 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 I also imagine the batteries are actually pretty 
Speaking of environmental problems, like batteries are still made of kind of relatively not great materials, right? And if you're oh yeah, if you're creating massive, massive batteries, yep, it's just like a a large like how do you dispose of yep. them and all that kind of and stuff. And one of the main problems is they don't last that long, right? Either. Yeah, right. And so you have this like a bunch of rare earth metals. You just burned a bunch of fossil fuels mining and, and manufacturing into a battery and it's good for five years or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see why that's not an attractive option. Yeah. I wouldn't want to have to deal with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. So let's just talk briefly about, you mentioned that nuclear has the lowest deaths per kilowatt hour. So those deaths that are coming from renewable energy, what what's that all about? I, th- I think it's just like industry-related accident stuff, like tr- mm-hmm. tradespeople installing things, getting electrocuted, and falling off of wind towers is my understanding. Um, okay. And I don't know if they include extraction, and that's because there's a lot of mining and manufacturing okay. that goes on, too, associated with those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know kind of like what kind of life so- cycle they're looking at in terms of those deaths, but... Well, here's another thing as well, is that you just, you have more workers, right? Or more people with renewable energy sources just because the sheer scale of the installation is totally different. If you build a nuclear power plant somewhere, you build the plant and you, you know, you hire a select group of people to kind of build and maintain it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it produces an incredible amount of power. Right. Whereas, like, to get the same amount of power from solar panels, we're talking about a lot of solar panels, yeah. right? And we're talking, that's a lot of installation. It's a lot of maintenance. Uh, same thing with turbines, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and you're right. They do, they tend to be like tall, yeah. right? They tend to, um, be in environments that aren't necessarily that safe. And they are going to take a lot of maintenance. And so it is, it's true that, you know, in one example, you're just more likely to have a small group of of really highly trained and highly safe people working on it. And in the other one, just not so much. So this isn't like a great bullet point on your like green jobs platform. (laughs) It's not. No. Yeah. Because you're good, you per plant, I don't know, at maximum a few hundred people, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's not to suggest that we couldn't increase the safety in, in the renewable energy industry, but it is just kind of, um, it's just good to remember Mm -hmm. like the scale. And I'm honestly, I'm not particularly concerned with the safety of the renewable energy sector. I think it's just it's counterintuitive that by the numbers, nuclear is safer. Yeah. And that's all I want to point out. I don't mean yeah. to demonize renewable energy safety. Yeah. So it, it does make me wonder if, you know, because one of the reasons there's there's so few nuclear industry-related deaths is because it's like, um, A, of all nuclear powers mostly happening in really developed countries, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of safety culture around it. Mm-hmm. And most of the people working in nuclear power are like these really highly paid, fairly privileged people, exactly. right? Yeah. And so it makes me wonder if nuclear was adopted worldwide as a power source, it just makes me wonder if we would start to see a lot more deaths um, in the nuclear industry. And it also makes me worried. It's like, you know... If you can have a like a Chernobyl level disaster happen in in the Ukraine, you know it just seems like 
if you have hundreds of countries and especially you know countries that are maybe not very well run mm. or countries well, that you know what i mean i i see your point there um and i think i think that's one of the reasons i like the death per kilowatt hour measure mm -hmm. is it's taking into account how many plants exist but you are saying it basically all the most developed countries have it now and then maybe lesser developed countries are going to get it and use it but the, the truth is is that countries are all getting more technologically advanced getting more That's educated true. right yeah. everyone is on this trajectory of becoming more sophisticated in terms of their use of, of institutions and technology. Mm -hmm. And that's the right direction to go in. And if, if more countries became capable of wielding nuclear power, that's a mm -hmm. win. Um, and it, I, you know, there is an international nuclear agency. I don't know exactly. I mean, obviously they don't have like, they can't go into a country and say, you guys can't do this. But that's what diplomacy is, right? Is, mm -hmm. is whenever someone starts developing any kind of nuclear technology, there's a lot of international scrutiny. That's true. Right? I think one of the potential issues with nuclear power that's hard to quantify is what happens if the world is producing a much more substantial amount of nuclear waste, right? right. That could, in the long run... Yeah. Yeah, it could really add up in the long run. Let's talk about nuclear waste. We have tens of nuclear power plants, maybe, maybe over 100 in the country. Basically, all of them, from what I understand, they're storing their nuclear waste on site. If your nuclear power plant's on the coast, like the San Onofre power plant down between San Diego and Los Angeles, you just store your waste on site on the coast. And you can put it really badly in the sense that, like, if you wanted to find, like, a really scary place to put nuclear waste, it'd be on the coast between, like, two huge populated cities, right? In the show that John Oliver did on nuclear waste, he cites a statistic of 100 million gallons of nuclear waste that exist in the u.s right mm -hmm. i just am curious like do you have any concept of like how much that is a hundred million gallons and, like when he said it in the show is like 100 million gallons it wasn't like that he was obviously aghast mm -hmm. at it which influenced the way i thought of it i was also aghast he was aghast and i was i trust john oliver so i was like this Let's must see. be a whole lot a hundred million gallons i'm gonna guess that that's like a mid-sized lake what is mid-sized lake? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. A lake. Okay, let's say this. A lake. Wait, okay. Do a you lake? want a multiple choice? Well, here's, here's, okay. my, here's my initial guess, and then we could do multiple choice. My okay. initial okay. guess is that 100 million gallons is about the amount of water in a lake that you can see the other side of. You definitely can see the other side of this lake. I'll okay. give you that. Yep. Okay. All right. So, so what, what are my options? Okay. Let's just start here. So... Let's say you have nuclear waste piled 20 meters high, mm -hmm. which is like 60 feet. It's a pretty mm -hmm. high pile. All right. Would it fill Central Park, Manhattan, or a football field? Let's see, 100 million. Yeah, I'm going to guess a football field. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because here's the thing. A gallon is like a fish tank, right? Yeah. 
Oh, and wait, a really small one. Yeah. A small one. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's actually a gallon is like one of those big containers of milk, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or is exactly. that a half gallon? That's a gallon. The that's big gallon. jug. Big the, jug is a gallon. Like the biggest jug you can get at the grocery store, right? Yeah. So even though 100 million is like a big number, if you think about the volume of it, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can fit a lot of those jugs in a football stadium, yeah. especially if they're stacked 60 feet high. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still a lot. Yeah. But, yeah. But, so, when you imagine nuclear waste, is there any like image that comes to mind? Like, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, the classic example <laughs> is like barrels full of glowing yes. green goop, right? That was that's exactly what comes to my mind, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons I've been so sketched out by it. Yeah, is because I imagine that literally just next to the plant, there's a bunch of barrels just sitting out in the open that are like little steel drums. Yeah, that, that you know, you could just like leaking, tip over, and they would like spill. Ooze. <laughs> so, what is it actually? I'm, I'm now that I think about it critically, I imagine nuclear waste looking like, um, like carbon or something. It's kind of like black, rocky substance. Is that kind of what it is? It's like all th- kinds of materials, and my understanding is most of it is solid. Okay, yeah. yeah, but it's true. Like, there's a lot of liquid in nuclear power, right? And so you probably have some amount of like irradiated. It depends liquid. on your fuel type. There is yeah. there are liquid fuel types, but the the norm is solid. Okay. Yeah. Currently. Okay. Does the water get irradiated, like in your typical um, power plant? No. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Like the the cooling water passes through the same way, like, I don't know if you know how an engine works, but the same way like coolant would pass through your engine block. There's, I like, see. channels so, built for it. Right. So yep. you have like heat pipes and stuff, but you don't have water that's like directly coming into contact. With... Correct. Heat okay. pipes is a great way to think of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's our PC building background coming in here. <laughs> PC as in personal computer. <laughs> <laughs> so... It is, in fact, not stored in steel drums. There's two main ways. This, the standard, if you're storing it on site, which is really common because we don't have a long-term storage plan, is to put it in dry cask storage. Imagine cylinder that's maybe 10 feet wide and 15 feet tall. I'm guesstimating these dimensions based mm-hmm. on videos I've seen. The steel on the outside for the new standard is half an inch thick. Then inside, they have basically... This structure, I think it's made of concrete. You can put tubes of other canisters into. So you're inserting these canisters inside of this bigger canister. And so it's kind of protection and protection. And I don't, I should have looked into the exact internal structure of this. So it's steel filled with concrete. Yeah. And then you have a smaller container around the actual radioactive material yeah. which is inserted into it yeah so that seems like fairly secure and, and like these... it's it's not just gonna bust open at the first earthquake or something no like and that. they're they're firmly rooted to the ground and mm-hmm. are built on platforms that have drainage and whatnot so they can't be flooded and mm-hmm. are built to withstand direct airplane impact that's become a standard it's crazy you'd be surprised how often direct airplane impact comes up when yeah. researching safety yeah. and nuclear. <laughs> I guess, like, yeah. yeah. That's it's, Maybe it's just because that's one of the fears, right? Is that like, like, okay, like if we get invaded and bombed, there's pretty much nothing we can do about that, right? Mm-hmm. But like someone hijacking a plane and flying it into a nuclear power plant is like a thing yeah. that could happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And plants, that's like a new spec for 
generation three plants is that they're supposed to be able to withstand a direct nuclear or direct airplane impact yeah who would have thought a nuclear impact (laughs) yeah plutonium is one of the the waste products it has a half-life of twenty-four thousand years and it takes 10 half-lives to become harmless wow so that's about a quarter of a million years right yeah first of all what's your concept of a quarter of a million years like um yeah when i think about that i think about that as maybe like roughly it's a very very long time (laughs) yeah yeah and it's certainly when like certain wise indigenous nations were talking about thinking of the effects of things in seven generations Right. right we're talking about like just thousands of generations mm-hmm. so like what effect. i was just I'm, i want you to solve this for us so okay. if it were up to you mm-hmm. like what can can you think of anything that would be stable or somewhat predictable over the course of hundreds of thousands of years you mean like is it possible for us to know is that what you're asking yeah sure i mean i don't think so i anything. think no, I like humans aren't used to thinking on that scale, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, that's one of the things that makes me worried about nuclear power and makes me worried about a number of other things that have been happening lately is that people are making these decisions and they just have no idea what the impact is going to be mm. over the course of thousands of years. They don't really know what they're doing to future generations. Yeah. Another example I'm thinking about is genetic modification, which I think has a, it's a similar kind of um, Pandora's box of opportunity and potential risk, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's terrifying, to be honest. Right. GMOs in that sense... It's it's maybe more scary to me, even though I'm not that eked out by them, um, the nuclear waste, if we followed like best practices around nuclear waste. So like, you know, I'm like a rock climber mm-hmm. and I took a geology class in college. So I'm like super qualified on this stuff. And um, <laughs> Robin knows rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I go climbing at Smith Rock here in Oregon yeah. and like that rock formation is 33 million years old. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of years. It's a lot of years, right? Mm -hmm. So like we were talking like plutonium will be safe in a quarter of a million years and that rock formation is 33 million years old and that Mm -hmm. rock formation isn't even like particularly old Mm -hmm. as far as rocks go, Mm -hmm. right? And so like that's where I start to be like, all right, like time, time isn't something we're used to, as you said. These different scales of time are not something that we're used to thinking about. Yeah. Um, where I'm from in southeastern South Dakota, there's this uh, bedrock called Sioux Quartzite. And this that Sioux Quartzite is 2 billion years old. Mm. And it's extremely hard. It's a 9 on the hardness scale. Right? Nine like diamond 10. is 10. Right? Wow. Okay. And that's hard. There's, I, I think it's very like impermeable to water as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like some, there's different types of rocks that are like either permeable or impermeable to water. So, sure. like, I don't know if Sioux Quartz is a good candidate for nuclear waste storage or whatever, but yeah. like, I would guess that it might be if it was the right formation and the right location and mm-hmm. it had enough depth. Right. That's kind of the, the conventional wisdom in the scientific community for people who've studied this and tried to think of ways to store it. Mm-hmm. And in the 80s, I see. So, you just you find something that's super tough. That's super old. Yep. That's not going anywhere. Yeah. And you just try to 
contain it as best you can within that. Yes. Okay. And as deep as you can. Yeah. Right? Okay. I yeah. mean, that seems, as far as ideas go, that seems like a decent idea. Yeah. And I just wanted to explore this, you know, some of the other ideas around containment might sound appealing, but are actually not. So for example, I remember learning this in, in fourth grade or something. The teacher was talking about, you know, people have thought about just shooting nuclear waste into space. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Right? <laughs> and which is like on the surface, it's like brilliant. That is that's the right idea, right? Yeah. That's what we want to be doing with it. it seems fairly simple, yeah. right? Yeah. The problem is that, you know, if you have a rocket filled with with nuclear waste blow up in the atmosphere, yeah. which, you know, to be honest, like spaceships <laughs> still blow up in the atmosphere a lot. Yeah. It's like a statistically... It's one of my favorite montages to look up online is like <laughs> oh, rocket fails. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like it's like a statistically significant amount of rockets just burn oh, yeah. up in the it's, atmosphere. We don't have a good track record of launching rockets into space. Like we're getting better. Like we're learning things. But like we want to give that another century maybe. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like commercial need... flights. Like you, you trust a commercial flight now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but you wouldn't have jumped on it like ten years after the Wright brothers like invented the the probably not or it probably was. not yeah. yeah yeah and I and I don't have to explain to you what kind of a hazard it is to have a rocket filled with nuclear waste blow up in the atmosphere right, right. so basically for the time being it's got to stay on planet Earth yeah so we either need to figure out a way to get rid of it or is there any way to like de-raid you know like detoxify it. Nuclear waste? Just, yeah, or is that just that's not a like thing? it's one of those things that's like, well, maybe maybe future technology will figure out a way to like diffuse nuclear waste. And but we're just not we're not I about mean, it, it could, right now. Maybe maybe we will, but like yeah. maybe, maybe that's just like a vague technological like pipe dream, right? Okay, fair enough. Um, but it's possible. Like mm -hmm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it won't happen, but we can't like exactly. It's like it's not happening now. Like what the way I was I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos, and the way one commentator put it was like, basically, if you're using nuclear power without a a solid nuclear waste plan, and I don't mean like solid nuclear like like never mind. Yeah, I mean a good plan. <laughs> a good plan. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then it's basically like building a house with no toilets. Right. Okay. Fair enough. And. Yeah. In the 80s, there was an act, it was like Nuclear Waste Disposal Act, something like that, and there have been various amendments to it. And one of the amendments was, I think, in 89, and they tried to designate a place in Nevada called Yucca Mountain as a place where we could store our nuclear waste. Mm. And it was going well, and then it went badly. And uh, basically, the the county that they designated the site in is like the third biggest county in the contiguous U.S. It's called Nye County. It's just northwest of um, Las Vegas. I think mm. Nye County also contains like Groom Lake slash Area 51, a lot of the test sites, okay. stuff like that. And it was identified as a, a place a, that was geologically stable. They could dig deep enough and they mm. invested like $10 billion into this and it was going to cost wow. like $100 billion total. They already built a bunch of the infrastructure. And then Harry Reid, one of the senators from Nevada, came out and said like this is the it's called the screw nevada bill is what, oh, what no. he called it he's a politician who's in the senate who has to appeal to all the constituents of his state right right and there's a lot of people in las vegas 100 miles away who are kind of pissed off that this is happening because they mm -hmm. in their minds if you go tell them oh we're putting it in a geologically stable formation that shouldn't really cause any problems to you 
fuck man half right. the people in that city are used to them detonating nukes like 100 miles away right right, right. and like well yeah and and it's like would you want that in your backyard i mean that's one of the problems is it's like i'm like well that sounds very safe yeah but it's an interesting question i'd rather it not be in my backyard so senator reed and nevada as a whole were kind of up in arms mm-hmm. nye county was like okay sure let's do it <laughs> interesting <laughs> It's a very so, unpopulated county, by the way. I think there's like 80,000 residents or so total. And Wait, okay, so the county residents didn't really care. I think they didn't only not, they were on board. And I'm, I'm not sure like what kind of incentives, you know, sure. maybe they needed like an economic development injection or whatever. Like yeah. this was going to bring a lot of jobs, some money in, into mm-hmm. that area. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what they were stoked about in that situation. But the point is, I find it interesting that the, the most local people whose backyard it was literally in yeah. were like, meh, like, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the risk to people in Las Vegas. Probably minor. Okay. Like yeah. you're yeah. burying something on in, in like a rock that's millions of years old. That's mm-hmm. geologically stable, according mm-hmm. to scientists. But what do they know? You know, it's just to me, it was yeah. like, you're probably more likely to die of something <laughs> happening in Vegas, to be honest. You could go stand on top of the mountain yeah, and you won't have any more radiation exposure than you would anywhere else. The most radiation exposure you're going to have standing on the mountain is from the sun. Mm, right? Interesting. So that's it's one of those things that I'm like, ah, oh, I wish people knew more. Like, yeah. I wish people understood geologic time. Mm. I wish people understood nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. And it is dangerous, but there's ways to store it where it's not going to harm you. Like, this stuff won't just like it's not like it's kind of like when people see a spider like they see a spider and the first thing they imagine is going to jump on their face yeah and it's across the room yeah (laughs) that's true and it's terrified of them by the way yes yeah yeah (laughs) so you're right so yeah it's easy it's easy to like conflate the real dangers of the thing with the imaginary dangers of the thing mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it sounds it sounds like the senator was kind of leveraging this for some kind of political I mean look at it like if I was if the way he was probably thinking about this was like Mm -hmm. all right like this is pretty it's is it easy or difficult to fear monger about nuclear power yeah it's pretty easy it's easy yeah all right this is what we see with Trump right yeah is is it easy or hard to like stir up racial fears and Mm -hmm. and xenophobic fears Mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's easy yeah. So if you want to just quickly, cheaply stir just up like political support, you just stoke those flames, right? right? Totally. Um, it's not easy to explain and to get people on base with with long term nuclear storage being safe, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like everyone's like, oh yeah, I want cheap energy, but oh the nuclear waste, oh that sounds scary, and I don't want to bother to like, and yeah. I don't want I don't want to blame people for not wanting to learn about it because this is complicated. Sure. But. It's it's a it's maybe a flaw in our society that's not going to allow us to properly develop this technology at this moment, based right. on our general education level, and based on how our polit- political systems work. Right. Right. So yeah, it basically just highlights the fact that we're just not mature enough to handle yeah. the the power of this technology, whether yeah. it's the military side of it. Or this kind of the more civilian side of it. In the civilian side, I don't mean to throw the civilians under the bus, which I want to do in a way. (laughs) Because I've talked to, I know a lot of my friends listening to this are going to like, 
Like, I know they're not with me on this. Yeah. All right. And, yeah. and they're not dumb people. Right. It's just like, I have spent like a lot of time and I have a, a very different like background with a lot of these subjects where I'm like, okay, I see how this is plausible, but like right. I had to get there. Like mm -hmm. I had, like, I didn't, nobody walked me there. I had to like intensively investigate a bunch of things and I'm still yeah. not a hundred convinced, hundred percent convinced that nuclear is a good option for us. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's partially because I, I do I do have actually a high level of confidence and trust in American institutions, which I don't think is very fashionable, but mm. I do generally believe in them and, and their ability to like properly regulate things like this, where you have um, professionals and engineers who are trying to develop systems that... Mm -hmm. To, that that operate in such a way that they gain the public trust and can be sustainable in that sense yeah but i, I, I think you're I, right i i think it's a lot of times the failure is not systems that are designed necessarily it's often you know whether it's a chernobyl disaster or whether it's burying the nuclear waste in nevada right it's like it's more of a kind of a political logistical failure yeah it is and and i don't think i took in the gravity of that I was talking to a good friend of mine, Sarah, who I adore. I love her work. She's an activist here in Eugene. And we were having this fun debate about it. And we, I was getting into it. I was getting kind of like, you don't understand. And, and she was like, cool as a cucumber. Mm. I was telling her, like, it's kind of these frustrations that I had is from a scientific perspective, from how I understand geology and nuclear waste. It's not that we can't store nuclear waste well, it's that people won't store mm -hmm. nuclear waste well. Mm -hmm. It's up to the federal government to figure out a long-term waste disposal plan for nuclear power plants in the United States. Yucca Mountain was our best shot, and it was shot down, and we haven't come up with a replacement plan, which to me is just absolute negligence, yeah. right, in terms yeah. of responsible parties, which is all of our federal politicians in the Senate, House of Representatives, and also the executive branch. Yeah. It is on them to figure this out. The fact that Harry Reid in Nevada was a coward and took the easy road mm. and and straw manned nuclear waste as his like platform to get reelected and save Nevada or whatever mm. is atrocious to me. Yeah. But as I was saying, I was I was saying to Sarah, it's not that we can't store it well, it's that people won't. And she said, that's the same as can't. Which I mean and there I is like, a yeah. there's a basic reality <laughs> to that, right? She's right. Cause, cause, yeah. At the end of the day, is it gonna happen? It, yeah. We're we're here with with <laughs> nuclear waste piling up, like around at reactors, and I'm. Yeah. It's not that I'm not. I don't think that these reactors, even the one I brought up earlier, San Onofre, between LA and San Diego, yeah. people are like, "Ooh, it's on the coast," and blah blah blah. It's like ring of fire. This site that they've built is built to withstand earthquakes, tsunamis, airplane crash, like a direct airplane hit. Okay, it's a passively run system. It doesn't require any power. Wow. Okay. Nice. So, when if we try, we can do this stuff, and mm -hmm. like we can do it well. Mm -hmm. They're just like we're doing what we can as on-site storage, and like they're gonna have to update that site every hundred years. Yeah. What if the United States goes through a political collapse within that hundred years? What right. if we get invaded? What if, what mm -hmm. if aliens come? What if, or, whatever, like, or, you know, more realistically climate change, right? Sure. So that's the pro it's like yeah. what, you know, uh, 
Pacific Coast tsunami happens, mm -hmm. right? That's because I think that that's one of the most likely scenarios. I think Fukushima serves as a really good, I mean, not good, but like an apt cautionary tale, mm -hmm. right? Because I think we have all of these situations where something's like contained for now. Yeah. But yeah, what happens if a natural disaster sweeps through, whether yeah. it's like a, a large scale earthquake or a tsunami and, and, or whatever? Supposedly, this site in San Onofre is supposed to be able to withstand that. If somebody really, really, really wanted to mess it up, they could. Yeah. Right. And yeah. maybe someone would want to do that. Maybe yeah. there's an, an enemy of America that would want to do that. Sure. Good luck doing that if it's buried under half a mile of bedrock. Right. Yeah. And so that's the best plan. Mm -hmm. And. They've done this. The only there's 30 some countries that have nuclear power around the world. And the only one that's taken it seriously in terms of long, long term storage is Finland. Mm. And good response. I love Finland. Scandinavia. Like shout out. Yeah. OK. Like I will just keep like shoveling it on to you guys because like you guys are responsible somehow. Like I don't know what they're. I, I should just move there. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I love these people. They're just like killing it in every respect. Right. But. They've done basically what we were going to do in Yucca Mountain. Yeah. So they found a site, they have like two billion year old rock. Yeah. Um, and they're just like have a long term plan to to fill all these like tunnels and rooms in the tunnels with nuclear waste and like seal it up. Yeah. Um, and they've even thought about since we're talking about millions of years potentially mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of years, we don't know what languages will exist at those times. We don't know what types of peoples are going to run into it. Like, certainly yeah. they're not going to be speaking Smart. Finnish or English. So, like, Smart. how do you communicate to a cult? Like, it's basically like trying to think about communicating to aliens. How would you communicate yeah. to aliens that this is dangerous and you don't go here? Don't touch and, like, this. they've spent a lot of time thinking about that. You know, yeah. I don't, I, this show's already been really long, and I don't know if I want to like dig in. Yeah. To what they did there, but it's interesting. That is like, interesting. Mostly and... just ha having it half a mile underground is like a pretty good deterrent, like, because mm -hmm. no one's going to find it. But if they did, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> be like. That's no, true. And it's just, it shows an example of that kind of generational thinking, which mm -hmm. I think has been lost, right? Is people just actually taking the time to like try to dot the I's and cross the T's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yep. So, end of that. Good job, Finland. And... Good job, Finland. <laughs> can we just start sending all of our nuclear waste to Finland? <laughs> Dude. They can be like the China of, you know, as China was with garbage, they can be, yeah. Could, that could be a, an economy for them. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea, right? Yeah. We need to uh, We need to pitch that to a country with some really good bedrock, Robin, you know? Yeah. Like, hey... <laughs> Hey, you guys are solid. You, we want us ever examined how much bedrock you have in your country? <laughs> Do I have a deal for you? Canada actually oh, has like Canada. a super old, it's called the Canadian Shield. They have a huge section of bedrock that's just like billions of years old. Yeah, oh, but yeah. they also have all the fresh water, Robin. We we probably mm. don't want to mix all the nuclear waste <laughs> with all the fresh water. <laughs> The more that we talk about it, I think that you do, 
you are helping to highlight both the challenges of all the other methods yeah um and really to highlight some of the benefits of nuclear power mm-hmm. um and it does i i do think that the the efficiency of it can't be overstated right mm-hmm. like it's just like by well, far i mean is that true right <laughs> so like i said earlier compared to chemical energy and energy output it's like oh man this is a no-brainer we should definitely just do nuclear yeah but there's a lot of cost associated economically Mm -hmm. like cost per kilowatt hour nuclear Mm -hmm. is actually being beat by renewables right now okay by a thin margin but Mm -hmm. it just got overtook by i think both wind and solar Mm, okay um and natural gas is like dirt cheap right now so i think that's probably beating everything yeah. Um, but like coal is, is losing to natural gas. Like coal is probably mm-hmm. more expensive than any of them. You know, the more safety mechanisms and the more carefully we approach nuclear, the more regulation, which we we should have all of that. Yeah. But then the, that the more expensive the cost it is. Up. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So really, we're trying. We're always trying to find newer ways to do nuclear that'll make it more cost competitive and basically newer reactor designs. So there's kind of like generations of nuclear reactors, and right now we're on uh, generation three there's some of those that are in place and the, i think the first one got put online in 2006 no 1996 these are built to last a lot longer like 60 years and then with some upkeep up to 100 years mm. um, whereas i think generation before that they could last 40 years so that's like huge right because it takes like several years to recoup the cost of a nuclear power plant as opposed to a natural gas or coal plant, it takes mm. a couple of years, mm. okay. right? And but once they they hit that profitable margin and overtake the cost after several years, at like eleven or twelve years, they're making more profits than a coal or natural gas plant would, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's kind of requires like long term thinking in the investment realm too. Talking about generation three, and this is still uranium fission reactions, and. They basically are like a little, they're a little bit safer and they have what's called walk away passive safety measures. So at Chernobyl, at Three Mile Island, you needed people on site to be able to manage the reaction if things went badly. Oh, and, okay. and passive walk away safety means that. It's like remote control. No, it no. means because of the way it's engineered and structured, yeah. the reaction will shut itself down if it gets to a certain threshold. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Right? Time out. Time okay. out here. One of my concerns about nuclear power, though, is like, let's say that you do have nuclear power plants popping off all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. Who's to say that the countries they pop up in are going to be as, you know, as responsible, right? Yeah. As as any of the countries currently doing it, right? So early on in the 70s, there were only a handful of countries that had nuclear technology. Mm-hmm. The UK, France, USSR, United States, and a lot of those countries, I don't know the exact politics, but basically like, they were buddy buddy, part of NATO, part of the UN, blah blah blah. They wanted to share secrets with each other and and help each other produce nuclear power because this was like the new like we're gonna have free cheap energy, right? And so you know we share with other countries. And the only one I can remember off the top of my head is Israel. The gr- agreement was we're gonna show you how to make nuclear power. Go do it. Uh, just don't make any nuclear weapons, please. In the 1970s, there were five countries who accepted our help or other countries help to make peaceful nuclear energy. 
and turned around and made nuclear weapons with it. That said, there are still 24 countries around the world who have nuclear energy technology who haven't developed nuclear weapons. So this isn't a one-to-one -one relationship. Uh, speaking of proliferation, I wanted to mention this program called Megatons to Megawatts. It was an agreement between Russia and the United States that started in 1993 and went till 2013. Basically, all this was was Russia offloading old nukes to the United States, which can you imagine thinking of that during the Cold War, during the arms race? Wild. So Russia starts selling us its old nuclear weapons, and we proceed to use those weapons to dismantle the warheads and to convert it into nuclear fuel. Wow. Which between, like during the operating period of this program, it produced 10% of the United States electricity. Whoa. <laughs> what? I was like flabbergasted to hear that. Um, and I mean, truth is, there's like a lot of nukes lying around. And so mm -hmm. if we got the right people in power and we had favorable public opinion toward nuclear, we could literally convert nuclear weapons into power sources. Hmm. And we already have, we've already refined that fuel. Like it's, in, in fact, much more highly enriched, as we said earlier. So it's mm. presumably a much better power source than like typical so-called enriched uranium. So I think that the assumption that nuclear is inherently safer, I think, is perhaps flawed. I think it's just that, you know, the fact that the people who are doing it right now are maybe like doing it with a certain degree of responsibility right it's just as far as like the day-to-day -day. it's remarkable actually you know? um i'm surprised japan had a mishap because i think of them as like one of the they... most technologically on their shit countries and well organized and well. right right yeah, yeah. um and so, they weren't able to avoid Fukushima. So so it's i think that's that's one of my lingering concerns right is like maybe if you have a country that's like installing a bunch of renewable energy resources, you know, it's like people are, are dying due to hazardous safety conditions. And I don't want to minimize that. You know what I mean? I don't want to like make light of that. But I think it's very different when something equivalent to that level of negligence happens with nuclear power, then, you know, you can end up with an event which like contaminates an entire continent. So, you know what I mean? I think Maybe. It's, I don't I think know. It's like eh, we're talking about different things. I think it's different for like, you know, someone working on an array to fall off and die. Right. That's like that's like a tradesperson who has signed up for that. Right. Um, OK. OK. You know, versus like just, you know, I'm living in whatever country and all of a sudden this nuclear wind blows over and thousands of people die. Like I just I think it's a. The implications of that are very different in my mind. But people people don't generally die from a nuclear wind blowing over, right? Like, I mean, not generally. Yeah. However, it did happen, right? It and has so... happened. It, it's a real threat. It's just that it's it's really hard to quantify, and it, it depends a lot on people doing it well. So really, like in a way, it depends on your confidence in humanity, right? In this like kind of long-term real way. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of what I like about this topic, mm -hmm. because I think most of my friends are like, they kind of believe the apocalypse is like more or less imminent, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? They yeah. they believe that basically like we need to skill up and be ready for the world to like unravel around us and for all of our institutions to fail. I personally don't have that outlook at all. Let's just say North Korea is like that's like the biggest wild card I can think of. Mm-hmm. And we're not in the Cold War anymore. That was worse. But like, let's just say North Korea decided to like nuke a couple countries because they haven't. They have nukes and they can do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? What people might imagine from that might tell you a lot about their trust in humanity, right? Let's just say that happens. And like, I think that people would probably like we. There'd be a, several countries that would crack down on North Korea, and there'd be this like chaotic short burst and things would settle and um general like stability and prosperity would resume and i do think that we are in a period of general prosperity and stability and i i I don't think it's hard to make a case for that but by and Mm -hmm. i mean when you compare it to world war you know we're not we're not there when you compare it to a hundred years ago 200 years ago 50 years ago worldwide look at statistics of premature death violent death um literacy mm-hmm. empowerment of women you mean you name it like we're it's doing well true. We, you we, know like, by, yeah by and large things we're not there but we're doing well like and we're, yeah. we're we're moving forward and like i see us on that path and and it's not inevitable as martin luther king said yeah progress is not inevitable and we're not on an, on an inevitable upward trend. I think that currently with the, the political context in the United States at the moment, there is actually reason to doubt the upward trend of things. But we've also seen a lot of resistance to the reversal in that trend. And mm. we've seen the strength of our institutions be resilient to it. And that's what I see. And mm. I I don't think we're in a perfect place, but I do see us. I don't I don't see our our. Um, like national character and complete shambles. Um, I see us in this this period of like illness, <laughs> and we're yeah. like recuperating, and our yeah. body is ha- it has a fever, and we're fighting back. And I I think it's actually going to make us stronger. I don't know. That's I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Well, yeah, I I hope that this period in American history is not soon forgotten. Mm-hmm. Because you know how how quickly people forget, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have? Was there anything else you wanted to cover? I mean, it's, it's after ten. I know it's a really long episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, good luck editing this. Oh one, god! Man. The only other thing which we mentioned earlier was fusion, and basically fusion is another one of those. It's a it's, pipe it's dream. It's been continuously like twenty to thirty years out for the last oh, like okay. fifty years. Okay. Got it. Yeah, I got we've it. been able we've been able to create fusion reactions, but they're no lo- nowhere near efficiency mm-hmm. to the point where the output outweighs the input mm-hmm. in terms of energy expenditures. Is, so what, it's what would the benefit of fusion be? Fusion's cool because instead of throwing in a bunch of heavy metals, you can feed it types of helium and hydrogen. Oh, okay. So just so that's what's going on in the sun, by the way, is like the whole solar system is like 90 per- 99% helium and hydrogen, something mm, like that. It's okay. mostly these super light atoms. Um, and then the sun, they're smashing into each other really fast and fusing. And somehow that creates a lot of energy. And that's what we want to do here. And it's like extremely complicated to do. <laughs> like the, the scale 
of the buildings. There's international projects underway where m- many countries are coordinating on building a fusion reactor. One's called the ITER. Um, or uh, what is that? Uh, it's an acronym. I-T-E-R. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even write the write it down. Probably international something something, something reactor. energy reactor. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So that's a thing. Um, but that like they probably won't even fire that up for another ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is an enormous project. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of cool. It's like this magnetically confined donut of plasma is basically what they make. So like the sun is plasma, and they will have this like floating donut of plasma that's confined like pushed into place by donuts donut magnets and (laughs) wow so you know what's interesting is that it's like remarkably close to exactly what your science fiction conception of a fusion reactor would be octoman is there yeah there you go octoman (laughs) i choose you (laughs) um okay all right fair enough now is cold fusion just like some ridiculous fiction? I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I, I think that's just like some meaningless <laughs> science fiction term. I I looked it up like a year ago and I was like, yeah, right. Like, I guess it, it seemed like on paper it could is one of those things that like people pencil it's out like could a work. theoretical so, um, option. I don't know. We're not going to cover it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. It's a big, big question mark. If you can give the right people the right tools to do it correctly now, I I think nuclear is a good option as it is at the moment. And doing mm-hmm. it correctly requires like everybody's buy-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and buy-in basically requires people to understand the cost of nuclear versus the cost of these other fuels. Mm-hmm. And the cost is, in terms of human life and health, is relatively low. Even though the, you know, comparing a nuclear disaster to widespread um, air pollution that we get from fossil fuels is like, it's like yeah. comparing driving your car, which is way more dangerous than flying in a commercial plane. Right. People are afraid of planes yeah. because it's like a graphic, you know, you're powerless, you're in a plane, you're crashing to the earth. And right. then in your car, you're used to it. It's mundane. Right. And it's the most dangerous thing that yeah. most that we of do. us do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, that's a really good comparison. Mm-hmm. And I do think, yeah, I think throughout all of this, like, that's what I really want to highlight is that no matter what happens, petrochemicals suck. Mm-hmm. And I think like that needs to be at the forefront of our conversations mm-hmm. is how can we how can we cycle those out? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just it's to me, everything has to be economically viable. Yeah. So fossil fuels are cheap for nuclear to really eclipse it. It has to be cheap. Hopefully renewables just kind of beat the beat it to its punch, but we still need that like baseline grid power. Yeah. Um, one more stat I just wanted to throw out there is that NASA did a study. How many? Because we've been doing nuclear for a while, and the the question really going forward is, if we started replacing coal and natural gas plants with nuclear plants, how much human health damage and how many lives would be saved if we started replacing them? I don't have that number, but I do have a retroactive number which is that 1.8 million deaths were prevented by nuclear power between 1976 and 2009, mostly due to avoided air pollution. Wow. So by getting the world onto 10% nuclear during that time, we avoided 
the deaths of 1.8 million people. And that was air pollution slash climate change, right? Mm -hmm. But mostly air pollution. And mm -hmm. as we move forward, we're going to see more and more effects of climate change. Yeah. Um, and more and more deaths as a result of that. Like, yeah. And, and like, it's just, it's the grim reality of it. Like, people will be dying um, as a result of these, like, effects of climate change including increased natural disasters and flooding yeah. and um, famine and that's true i mean who knows what the total cost of petrochemicals on the environment and human life is i mean it could you know the total cost could end up being in the billions right mm -hmm. and i know that um you know burning fossil fuels isn't the only thing contributing to climate change but damn is it a really big factor right yeah. so it's true that in hindsight it could make the dangers of nuclear power look just utterly insignificant in yeah. comparison. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's a good thing to kind of remember, lest you find yourself wandering away from that point. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, it's it's we we I think we haven't even begun to grok the damage that fossil fuels and burning them has wrought on our planet. Right. It's just not going to, I don't think it's going to sink in until mm -hmm. like many, 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 many more people die. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's going to be like, oh shit. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is intense. Yeah. Sleep well tonight, folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening, guys. Yeah. And hopefully you gained a little bit of insight into nuclear technology and the trade-offs of it versus other technologies we have on the table at the moment and um yeah I'm, i don't know about you but i need to go fuel up man <laughs> <laughs> i need to get some basic reactions happening in my guts right now all right <laughs> thanks for listening ciao guys <laughs> bye thanks for joining us for another episode of listening glass if you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. This episode features the track Dr. Bochef Penguin Dentist by Kneebody, Lipton Service Boy by Aero Johannes, and Vis and Sitta by Mac Woodruff. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us feature their work. Find out more information on them in the episode description. Another special thanks to Penny Grady, Michael Michaels, Jamie Bourgeois, Jordy Hicks, and Andy Howell for agreeing to be interviewed for this show. Find us on our Twitter handle, at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com.